Hey everyone, this is Keith, thinking today about equality in the context of morality in general and how we are moral people and how we strive to be. This is going to be a loose discussion. I'm going to bring a few various things in and I haven't prepared an outline really. I know a lot of you might be complaining or wishing that I did structure these more and sometimes I do but on a topic like this it's the kind of thing I might aim to write an essay about but sometimes I just don't know exactly how I want to go about doing that and just talking out loud thinking it through out loud is somehow easier more beneficial more rewarding in a way for me to just bring in things in the context of a dialogue, even though this is more of a monologue, to just get my mind around things and how I'm thinking about it. I've been thinking a lot about equality lately because it's such a big deal to so many of us as a moral principle. And we seem to pursue it at all costs, which is, it's kind of weird how that works. And I wanna just break it down and think about what we're really after and contextualize it within other moral principles that we should be balancing it with, possibly. I want to first mention moral foundations theory as a working psychological idea that I learned about in a book by Jonathan Haidt called The Righteous Mind. I read this book, I'm not sure how old it is, I want to say maybe six years or so, I read this book after Donald Trump was elected in 2016 because while Americans on the left were so broken and blindsided by this election, uh, I feel like most of us just turned to uh, resistance as a movement and opposition, stalwart opposition, kind of like how the Republicans behaved in Congress toward Obama and in this political partisanship way of like our team versus your team, and now we're just going to resist this awful new president. And I totally sympathize with that. I also felt super confused and, and such and angry when Trump was elected. But instead of just going into this resistance mode, maybe because I had the benefit of living in Berlin and having some distance from it all, I wanted to really understand it. And reading this book, The Righteous Mind, was really helpful for me. And I might even call it the most important book I've ever read because it opened my eyes to appreciating the different ways in which others, other people think about things, to try and understand other people on the other side of the aisle, to understand conservatives and what drives them. You know, it's so easy to just think, anyone that thinks different than me politically is wrong, is evil, is a bad person. And once you demonize and dehumanize people, you can justify anything toward them. You can justify violence, you can justify murder, and that has happened throughout history. And it's really scary. And I think right now in our revolutionary moment of the summer of 2020, I'm, I'm getting a sense of that, you know? Obviously, we're not living in a totalitarian regime that actually does send people off to death despite the crazy, exaggerated language that some people use to describe that exact kind of thing toward, let's say, the black community. 
that's definitely not the case. Um, but I do think that some of the utterances of people actually more from the left, but also from the right here and there, they do lead to this kind of dangerous mindset of, you know, uh, declassifying certain kinds of people or certain kinds of thought as morally reprehensible and therefore cancelable or sentenced to something like either an imprisonment, imprisonment or just a deplatforming or, you know, not death per se, but, you know, the communists of Maoist China and Stalinist Russia and Pol Pot's Cambodia, they did say this exact kind of stuff. Either you're an intellectual and therefore you're banned, you're going out to the fields and we might actually kill you because you're oppositional to the party. This kind of attitude is dangerous. It's really dangerous, but it can be justified in the name of equality. If you want everyone to be equal, maybe everyone should just be farmers, right? Maybe an educated doctor has no place in a society founded on equality. And especially if that doctor has dangerous beliefs toward the system. So I read this book and I think the major thing I got from it was this moral foundations theory. And I wanna just describe this. So the idea is essentially that there are at least five dimensions of morality and that we might prioritize them differently depending on our inclination. And those five foundations are care, fairness, loyalty, authority, and sanctity. So let me expound on these to get a better sense of things. And notice that equality is not actually one of them, but especially with care and fairness, we can kind of create a sort of idea of equality. So care versus harm is cherishing and protecting others. We can see this very much in a lot of modern movements, especially Black Lives Matter. Even the idea of Black Lives Matter is founded on care. You should care about black lives because they matter. And we have to protect black lives from, let's say, tyrannical policing or systemic racism or violence. So that is a major principle that is used as a rallying cry for that kind of movement. Fairness or proportionality. Rendering justice according to shared rules as opposed to cheating. This is another way that usually people on the left will critique a system for not being fair that justice must be meted out properly. Um, so the idea of social justice is strongly founded on this idea of fairness. And I also am quite obsessed with fairness. Um, this is something that's very hard to achieve because we all know that life is not fair. It's just not fair. There's a short story by the author Kurt Vonnegut called Harrison Bergeron in which a society in the future is so founded on fairness and equality that the people who might have an advantage disadvantage themselves through either weights on their body or you know, physical deformation, um, something that makes it more fair so that an attractive person is as equal to an unattractive person by let's say yeah, deforming their appearance. And I wonder when people advocate so strongly for equality if they want something like that. Because when you look at the world through the lens of 
something like oppressor versus oppressed and privileged versus unprivileged, this is kind of where you're going with it. And I, I think it's important that we analyze that and really ask ourselves what we're aiming for when we do that. Back to the five principles, I've covered care and fairness, and these are the two primary moral axes that liberals generally care about. A third would be loyalty or in-grouping, standing with your group, family, nation, etc., as opposed to betrayal. Now, traditionally, this is more of a conservative value, but I see a lot of it today on the left or the supposed radical left. I don't actually think of it as being very leftist because it's so emphasize, <laughs> it emphasizes so much this idea of in-grouping. You know, it's very ironic that anti-racism is so obsessed to stand against racism, which itself can be described as in-grouping. When people are racist in our kind of general understanding of that term, they in-group with themselves. So the Chinese might be racist to Japanese, they might be racist to Africans, but they're in-grouping with other Chinese. That's what makes them racist because they're prioritizing their group. And the irony is that anti-racists do the exact same thing. They in-group with each other and they define others by group. They name those groups, you know, and it might be something somewhat beneficial or caring like black lives or maybe specifically black women or even more specifically black trans women, but they're grouping them and then they're benevolently caring for them as a group. Whereas someone like me might prioritize an individual and I can note their characteristics, which they might use to identify, but I'm not concerned with in-grouping or loyalty. I don't feel like I'm betraying anyone either. I just don't actually feel the need to um, declare a loyalty to a group. This feels very Pledge of Allegiance to me. This feels very fall in line. And I find it very strange that supposed liberals or leftists would do that. Fifth or fourth axis of moral foundations theory, authority or respect. This is submitting to tradition and legitimate authority as opposed to subversion, let's say. Now, I'm reading these from Wikipedia, by the way, and you can look this up, moral foundations theory. Now, this is also traditionally a conservative value. You see it most in the church, right? Obviously, the, most high, the highest authority would be God, and then under God might be, let's say, like the Catholic Church priest, and that a priest is automatically revered and respected because of his standing as an authority figure to respect your elders, to respect your mother and father. These are all moral pleas to defer to authority. And I also am very skeptical of this. I've spoken about this before, especially about police, but in general, I don't automatically respect authority. I respect competence and intelligence and cogent arguments, and I need authorities to make those cases for themselves in order to earn my respect. I don't automatically give it. And this is another irony in the current movement of um, protest that there is kind of this idea of authority, 
the authority of the leaders of the movement and what they say goes. And whatever new meme is put out, that should be respected because it's promoting the highest values of the supposed group. The fifth one is sanctity or purity. Abhorrence for disgusting things, foods, actions, etc. This is opposite of degradation. And this is also traditionally conservative. Um, you can think about drugs as an obvious example here that um, conservatives, generally speaking, are against drug use because they degrade the body. They, you know, they degrade this idea of the body as, the, as a temple and to put something into your brain or your body that can mess with it and to, you know, it could possibly unhinge a person, which is true, taking too many drugs. It can put you into a state of, you know, delirium, to be sure, uh, also ecstasy and euphoria, but, you know, also just subversion, LSD and mushrooms might, use, might make you see a, a world beyond the current political structure, for instance. Um, getting high, just smoking cannabis uh, might make you question authority more, might make you a little more harder, harder to rule versus alcohol, which is, you know, probably the preferred drug around the world, which just deadens your senses, so to speak, as well as doing other things. So this idea of sanctity is traditionally this conservative value, but of course we might see it nowadays as also liberal. The whole foods movement, the whole, you know, nutrition and obsession with diet, veganism as well. Though, you know, veganism is probably more in the care, morality space, caring for animals, or the fairness of other sentient beings. Um, but if you make the argument for vegetarianism on a dietary level, then you're caring about the body and keeping it pure. No GMOs, no genetically modified organisms in your food because you, want, you have this concept that maybe genetically modifying a food through nutrition science and food science might make it impure. By the way, that is unfounded. All of our food is technically modified genetically through crossbreeding and cross-pollination and you know, creating the exact kind of corn that we want or the exact watermelon. These are not found in nature naturally the way we consume them. So everything that we eat is technically modified. So GMOs are something that we worry unnecessarily about and you can stop if you do worry about it. That's not to say there isn't, there aren't ways that we should be caring about food in terms of, you know, high, um, high added sugar content, too many ingredients that we don't recognize. These might be things to look out for, to be sure. And I think it does make sense. It's a prudent move for all of us to care about sanctity and purity to some degree, but we can predict where these might go too far, you know, a, a white supremacist, a real white supremacist might consider her bloodline pure and to mix with any other kind of race, race mixing would be to degrade the purity of the bloodline. <laughs> so that's obviously a conservative idea. That's obviously a dangerous idea, socially speaking. Um, it's one of these secret ideas insofar as people have that idea deep down but don't want to give voice to it. Um, and that is kind of this, I'm, I'm using the word conservative here, or right wing, um, this kind of value. So to recap, we have care and fairness, which are usually the leftist priorities 
but people on the right also care about those things. And then we have loyalty, authority, and sanctity. Now, again, back to equality. It's not listed here, but we can obviously conjure up how equality becomes a master value by organizing these values accordingly. And this is the funny thing, is that we can use all of these to get there. Authority is kind of necessary um, in order to achieve a certain kind of equality, isn't it? So now let me go into two ways that we can think about equality. <clears throat> Insofar as we can aim for equality, which I again have to say is difficult, because let's be honest, let's think about this for a second. Are we equal? Are we equal in any way? Uh, I just want to put this out there. This is kind of a no lives matter argument to subvert the argument a little bit. Maybe I should save this, but since I'm there, I'm going to go with it. My skill level as a cook is probably unequal to yours. You've probably cooked more meals or used more ingredients or have studied it. So we're not equal in terms of cooking food. Um, but my, my skill as a photographer is probably better than yours. So we're not equal there either. Um, or maybe it's worse depending on who I'm talking to, but you know what I mean, you know, like we can measure competence in all areas. And this is what merit is. This is what competence is. When you hire a doctor, you don't assume that all doctors are equal. Maybe you do. If they've passed the right tests, maybe that makes them all the same. They're all qualified. But, you know, you have a specialist for, let's say, that your nose and throat versus a general practitioner. So their talent in terms of treating your lungs or your rather your cough might not be equal. <clears throat> now, I'm just putting that out there as, a, as a, something to keep in mind. So two ways to think about equality here are equality of opportunity and equality of outcome. So when we have a discussion of equality, we have to think about what we're really talking about. And this is a very big, very big deal. This is a point that we have to emphasize. Equality of opportunity is great. I believe that it's eminently desirable to pursue equality of opportunity, to make it so that essentially everyone everywhere can do anything and that all barriers are removed, barriers to entry into a field, barriers of education, that everybody can get the information to equip themselves in order to become competent and excel through skill and merit. Now, this is very difficult because if we take something really clear-cut like athletics, you can create an equality of opportunity, but obviously you're not going to create equal athletes. You can offer uh, classes every day from as soon in life as possible for everybody in, let's say, a certain community. But some of those children will be predisposed towards certain athletics and others won't. They have the same opportunities. Now, it's hard to say if they are the same. It's very hard to actually achieve equality of opportunity. 
who's to say what opportunities lead to what. My brother and I, for instance, technically had the same opportunities. We were raised in the same household. Our parents gave us the same amount of love and attention. So we had, in a way, the same opportunities. But of course, we didn't, because as soon as you start living life, your path changes. So if I went to a school and had a teacher who noticed me, let's say, kicking a ball and then said, Keith really should be on this football soccer team. Um, maybe this provides a new opportunity for me that my brother doesn't get, right? But in general, we really care about equality of opportunity and we want to make sure that everybody has a good education, that everybody has equal access to health, that everybody has the chance to get online and surf the internet. These are ways in which to provide opportunity to people and we want to do it equally. We don't want a rich kid to have more resources than a poor kid. Of course, that child will have more resources because his family will be able to hire tutors, test prep lessons, etc. But generally speaking, we want to equalize opportunity because even just selfishly, we all want our society to be the best. And in order to be the best, we want every field to have the best people. In order for a field to have its best people, it needs to exploit the skills of as many people as possible, right? This is the idea that the next Albert Einstein could be born in an extremely impoverished area never go to school, not get enough food to eat, and this genius mind will be lost to the world forever because that child didn't have the opportunity to succeed. That's a tragedy for all of us. And I'm sure that's happening. Who knows how many countless geniuses are rotting away around the world because they don't have the resources, they, they don't have the entry into the fields that we could be benefiting from. But in general, equality of opportunity is desirable, but hard. It's hard, but we strive continually for it. It's not as hard as equality of outcome, which I'm going to say is impossible and pointless to pursue. Equality of outcome we can describe as having the same outcomes across the board. Now, I'm not even sure what that even means when I really think about it, but we hear it a lot right now in our political discourse. For instance, um, America has never had a female president. It's a totally unequal outcome of gender in presidencies. presidencies. <clears throat> that proves sexism, that proves that things aren't equal because if it was equal, we'd have half female presidents. If we look at Congress of 100 people, um, Let's specifically look at the Senate because there's a hundred of them. Right now we have 26 female senators, so that's a quarter. That's a, a record high. Um, is that a good number? Well, if you really demand equality of outcome, if you if your logic is that if half the population are women, half of congressional or half of the Senate should be women. If that's your logic, then 26 is far too low. Are you happy that it's not zero? I don't even know if you are happy. Maybe you still think we have tons of work to do in order to get it to 50. Now, the Senate is kind of an interesting case because a senator is just somebody that represents a state politically. And 
Is that a gendered role? Probably not. Uh, men and women can probably do that as well as each other. Why aren't more women in Senate? Well, it's a good question, I suppose. I don't actually know if it is a good question. Um, but you can ask that question. And if you're honest with yourself, you'll actually explore why that might be. And then you might care or not to make it equal by outcome through social engineering of some sort. We, we deal with this all the time. We deal with this uh, in the Google memo that James Damore wrote uh, for which he got fired and canceled basically um, because he was pointing to the pipeline. He was pointing to different female interests and why there weren't as many female engineers. We can look at this in terms of uh, bricklayers, which is almost 100% men. There are no women bricklayers really. Um, we can look at this with nurses, which is predominantly women, or lower elementary school teachers, which is predominantly women. Why are these gender, why are these um, gender ratios varied across society, depending on the, on the measurement, or not measurement, depending on the category that we're measuring? Why is that? Is it because of sexism? And is it something that we have to regulate stronger, more strongly in order to equalize? Uh, let's talk about race. So black people in America represent about 13% of the population. 13.7 is the latest number I've seen. Um, a percentage of that are descended from slaves, from the Atlantic slave trade, which let's say ended in 1863 during the Civil War. Let's say that number. Um, that's over 150 years ago. Since then, a lot more black people have immigrated to the states. So we have Caribbean ancestry black people. We have uh, African continents, black Americans. So we have a, a discrepancy already in terms of this number 13.7. But if we just assume that this number is monolithic, I don't know why we do that, but let's say we do that. Then we can think, how is this number proportional to the numbers around other issues like police brutality? Uh, so black people are 25% of victims to sh police shootings versus their 13% in society. So this seems like an unequal outcome if we're measuring by outcome. Uh, let's talk about crime. So black people commit around 50% of the crimes. So this is disproportionate to their number in society. Now, if we want to equalize for, for outcome, it's very difficult to equalize for outcome across the board for literally everything. Now, some people actually do want to do this. I'm curious how they would do this because it's the kind of thing that's, it's, it's clearly impossible, um, partly because if once you change the, the outcome for one group, you're automatically changing it differently for another group. So if you're, if you're measuring it, if you're changing it based on race, you might automatically throw gender off because you can slice society and parse it in any infinite amount of ways. You can do it on race and gender, which are the two obvious big ones that people think about. But you can do it in terms of height. You can do it in terms of attractiveness. You can do it in terms of age. You can do it in terms of anything. You can pick anything and think, well, if 30-year-olds represent 12% of the population, why aren't there 12% of 30-year-olds in Congress? Right? I mean, why is that a ridiculous question? So it's, you can maybe engineer society to be representational on the line of gender, but what would that look like? 
And is it equal in the more fundamental sense of a moral virtue? Do we care, like, when we say we care about equality, what do we really mean? And how are we measuring that? It's, again, not one of the five moral foundational principles or values. So if we look at care and fairness, obviously we might care about something like equality, but how fair is it to do that? How fair is it to say to somebody, you know, you might want to be an engineer, but so does this woman, so she gets to be the engineer because she's a woman. That's a quota, right? I think most of us have um, an instinctive kickback to the idea of quotas. Uh, but if your only value is equality of outcome, maybe you really prize quotas and want to enforce them throughout society. I guess I just have to ask, why do you want to do that? What benefit does society get from doing that? If we regulate uh, by outcome the amount of female engineers or even, let's say, female artists, you know, as an artist, I might apply to an open call for a photo exhibition, let's say. And it's very popular right now to prioritize certain kinds of artists. And I don't mean by style, but actually style as well. A minimalist landscape artist doesn't have as much of a chance, for instance, as winning a certain prize, as does a portrait artist. And if I can just be cynical here, a white, cis, heterosexual man who shoots landscapes has even less of a chance than a black trans woman shooting portraits of other black trans women. Now, that might seem a little conspiratorial, and I'm not going to back it up with all the evidence in the world, but I think you can see what I'm getting at here, that there is a certain kind of movement at the moment to prioritize some groups over others and to identify people not as individuals but as group members. And the, the moral justification for that is equality. Now, the irony here is that it's not an equality of opportunity that's being advocated. It's an equality of outcome. We've had enough landscape photographers. We've had enough white male photographers. We need more black women photographers. And if you have an open call and 500 people submit, let's say 1,000 for better math, and let's say 10 winners are chosen, what if there are only 10 women that apply and 990 men that apply? All 10 women might get the award. Now, what are the chances that those 10 women are as deserving, more deserving than all 990 of the men? Now, that's a thought experiment, but I hope it proves the point that it clearly won't necessarily be the most talented work. But this is where the argument against meritocracy comes from. And it's a very dangerous argument. This is an argument made by the Soviet Union that merit is, let's say, an oppressive white supremacist notion that automatically excludes and even negates the validity of some people to use woke language here, that if you're measuring by skill level, your tools for measuring this are racist. The SAT is racist. IQ tests are racist. And I'm not saying they're not, but I doubt that they're as racist as they're being argued. It is true that 
let's say on the SAT, which is a standard aptitude test for college applications in the, U in the U.S. by 17-year-olds, let's say there's a question, something like, uh, a clarinet is to an oboe as a canoe is to a blank. Now, this would be a kind of standard question. This is reasoning skills using analogy. Clarinet is an instrument. It's a woodwind. Oboe is an instrument. So a canoe is a, is a vessel on the water, and maybe the options might be um, yacht, uh, RV, um, diesel rig, and uh, table. So you know that a yacht is also a, a device that goes on the water, so that would be the answer. But let's say that you grew up in an impoverished neighborhood and you've never heard of an oboe or a yacht. Therefore, the test is racist because these are words that only privileged white people would know. That's the argument. Now, that is a flawed argument. It's flawed because it's not the test specifically that's racist. The test is simply testing for reasoning ability. The specific words used might be biased toward, let's call it, upper middle class mainstream culture. But the question is, do you throw away the whole test or do you work harder on equalizing the opportunity for lower income kids to learn these words? These words are out there. These are, these are words on the internet. These are words that might be included in online test prep materials. Now, do Chinese kids or Chinese, uh, kids of Chinese descent have more access to these words than African kids, African-American kids specifically? What do you think of that question? Um, East Asian kids score much higher than black kids. They score higher than white kids. Is it because that East Asian kids know what a canoe is more than a white kid? I would say not. They might know what an oboe is more. <laughs> That's a joke. Um, but I hope you see what I'm getting at here. Um, we, can, we can apply a critical lens on how we measure innate intelligence, for instance. And we can find discrepancies that hurt certain groups or certain individuals. And we can aim to fix that if we care to fix it. And as liberals, we might care about fixing that. We might want to be fair. We might want to make sure no one is cheating. And then we can talk about what cheating involves. Is a test prep tutor cheating? Are beta blockers taken during the test to reduce your stress levels cheating? Is using a calculator during a test cheating? Like those are fair questions. But to say that a calculator is racist is a bit crazy sounding. And you might have a decent argument. Maybe um, kids of a certain minority group have less access to calculators. Maybe kids of a certain minority group aren't taught higher math levels so that calculating the Pythagorean theorem 
or whatever, calculating the square root of something, might be harder for some kids than others. And therefore, the outcome will be racist because you'll have too many white kids or East Asian kids. Now, I guess I want to emphasize here, this kind of logic is good, it's friendly, it's, uh, it's, com it's compassionate to a degree. The fact that you might notice discrepancies and you might be curious why there are these discrepancies, why aren't there more black lawyers, for instance? If black people make up 13% of the population, but they're only 8% of the lawyers, maybe you say that that's bad, that's wrong. Why aren't there more black lawyers? Um, you're measuring on outcome, and you think that if there was really equality, that that number would be equal to the amount in society. Now, if you are genuinely curious about that, maybe you want to investigate why law isn't pursued by more black people. And that is a really hard question for social science to answer, but I do think it tries to. And staying on this topic of black success and job opportunities, I do want to emphasize how overrepresented black people are in music, in athletics, in entertainment generally. And when I say overrepresented, I mean statistically. So that 13% is more like half. It's more like 50% in music. Does that alarm you? Does that concern you? If the whole system is racist, if law is racist, why is music not racist? Isn't music part of the same overarching system? The answer is yes. Supposedly, white supremacy rules all of them. So why is it that black success is so strong in some of these areas? If it was truly a white supremacist state, would it not, wouldn't it not be? The, I suppose what I'm arguing here is that we've clearly equalized for opportunity regarding music and athletics. A black child can get his hands on a guitar and become Jimi Hendrix. A black child can get his hands on a basketball and become Kobe Bryant. Rest in peace. So we've equalized for opportunity, kind of, right? I mean, there are probably still disadvantaged kids that have never even heard of a basketball, sadly. I would love for our current mood, our current moment of justice to make sure that we continue to equalize for opportunity. You know, if you look at the National Basketball Association, the NBA in the USA, it is very diverse. It is predominantly black, but it's diverse globally. You have Lithuanian basketball players, you have Croatian basketball players, you have Chinese basketball players, you have Ethiopian basketball players. So the pool, the talent pool is global, but I don't think that there is a, let's say, Rwandan basketball player. Why not? Is nobody in Rwanda capable of playing basketball at an elite level? It's probably because Rwandans don't have access to a basketball court. Maybe no one has built one there. So if we care about opportunities, we would want to exploit the potential skill across the entire planet. Basketball is a pretty trivial example, but I hope the point is clear. If we want to discover the next Albert Einstein or make a breakthrough in bioengineering or whatever it is that we're aiming for, and as a society, I imagine we want to aim for everything, 
every field should be trying to equalize for opportunity because of these moral values that we have. We care about that. We want to make sure that people aren't harmed by their lack of opportunity. Um, maybe I'm using those words too generally. I think care and harm are probably more about safety and health, but I think we can still use the words a little, a little bigger. Uh, we want to be fair. We want to give everybody a fair chance, even though that's kind of difficult to do. We want to aim for it. And in terms of loyalty or in-group, I don't know if that applies. In terms of sanctity or purity, I don't know if that applies. But in terms of authority, we have certain measurements that can be considered authoritarian. Maybe that's too loaded a word. That can be considered uh, hierarchical. To achieve a certain level of success in basketball, you have to be able to put the ball through the hoop at a high rate, right? You have to have a certain amount of dexterity and nimbleness, right? And we can measure those things. We measure them in field goal percentage in basketball, for instance, or in steals for nimbleness, maybe. Um, there are statistics to all these things. Uh, to pass through medical school, you know, you need to know the organs of the body. You need to um, have the ability to make an incision with a, with a blade at a certain level of competence. You have to be able to draw blood without puncturing uh, the wrong place. These kind of things are measurable, and we can describe these as competence. We can also describe them as merit-based. You excel in any of these fields based on your merit, and merit is not racist. What might be racist, what might be racist, is the unequal opportunity for certain races to access the education necessary to achieve higher standing in a field. And once that education is achieved, to then maybe network and uh, grow in one's career, which does take people skills, interpersonal skills. It takes um, a strong network of knowing the right people. Is that racist? It's hard to say. It's hard to say. It make, I, I don't quite see that argument. I know that it's hard for me. That's for sure. Is it because of my race? I doubt it. I know that there are scouts looking for the highest talent in various fields. Are they racist individually? Maybe. Maybe there's some bias. Maybe there are some old people stuck in certain belief systems that make them racist and won't you know, look for the next talented Jimi Hendrix because they would rather find the next talented Eric Clapton. But I doubt it. I really do doubt it. So when people talk about systemic oppression, I'm curious what they mean. I'm curious how they prove that, and that inequality of outcome proves oppression. The fact is that some states and countries go above and beyond to ensure an equality of opportunity. When you do that, you don't necessarily get an equality of outcome because people aren't the same and they don't make the same choices. And you can group those people together if you want. You can say that men and women just don't make the same choices. Therefore, they're not going to be equally represent represented. I wouldn't even go that far. I would just say that individuals make different choices in life. And therefore, you're not going to have, quote, equal representation anywhere 
literally anywhere. Nowhere will be equal. You can parse it all out to the nth degree every single place and find discrepancies. You might say that Senate, the US Senate, is overwhelmingly white. But what if you break that down into English descendant white, Irish descendant white, German descendant white, uh, Russian descendant white, etc. You'll find discrepancies. You'll notice maybe that the English Protestants who had the stronghold on power in the beginning of the USA might be overrepresented compared to Irish descendant Americans who struggled on largely religious lines as Catholics until finally taking over Boston, which was an underdog fight. Taking over is putting it too strongly, but you can see these kind of trends everywhere. Right now it's in vogue to just separate between black and white. And I've made it clear how much I disdain that level of analysis. But you can do this in terms of religion. You can do this in terms of national origin. You can do this in terms of so many things. And it's just not helpful to demand equality of outcome because it's impossible. So when people demand it, I wonder, what are they really demanding? And I think it's something more like individual power to be the one in charge of deciding who is doing what. This is corruption. This is what we've seen in every communist country ever. And there have been many. There have been many communist countries throughout time. And they've all fallen prey to this failure of this ideal state by virtue of corrupt individuals who seize the power and mete out their form of justice, in quotes, as they see fit. I don't think that communism can work. Communism is the brand of, or the idea of a social economy that prioritizes fairness, that prioritizes an equality of outcome. Let's make it fair for everybody. Everybody has the same amount of food every day. Everyone has the same size house. And that's fair. Things are now equal. That will just never be enough. That'll never actually work. And that'll never actually get us to where we wanna go. Some people need to eat more food. Some people can live in a smaller house. And it's hard to know what people need, which is why it's better to prioritize the opportunities for everybody, to maximize those opportunities, and then let people self-select, make free choice, pursue more money if, if that money can get them a bigger house, right? To have the freedom to pursue what they want to do, to pursue nursing, even though society says that women should be engineers. I've talked to a lot of women that complain that not enough women are in the Senate or engineers and then I say, well, why don't you go and do that? You're a woman, go and do that if you feel that way. And they say, no, I don't wanna do that. Yeah, that's what most women are saying. <laughs> so why do you think they should? Equality, 
is very tough. It's a very abstract concept, and it's an imperfect concept. There, are, there is no equality in nature. The day is not as long as the night, but once a year. Not all bears eat the same amount of fish. Not all fish live as long lives. Ocean temperatures are not the same. Ocean levels are not the same. Rivers don't run at the same current. There is no equality in the real world. But we can aim for fairness, and we should aim for fairness. But is it fair that certain protesters get to protest in the streets and others don't? How do we decide that? How do we judge that? On what merit is protesting racism better than protesting lockdown? How do you measure that? What gives you the moral right to do that? I'm asking. I, I I'm curious to know. And I would like to hear an answer that's more than an eye roll and be like, oh, if you don't know that, then just forget it. Why, how can we even talk? I want to hear legitimate argument for the anti-racism movement. And it's not because I'm doubting it. It's because I want it proven. And I want equality talked all the way out. In my opinion, I want the equality of every citizen to have the opportunity to explain him or herself to a police officer that pulls them over. When I get pulled over in my car, I have the opportunity to respond to an officer. The officer says, do you know why I pulled you over today? Now I have a chance to talk. I have, a, I have an opportunity to speak. I want everybody to have that opportunity. What people do with that opportunity differs on a case-by-case, -case individual basis. It's not group-oriented. Not all black people say, fuck you, officer, I don't have to say anything. That's not something that all black people do. Plenty of white people do that. That puts them at a disadvantage in that interaction. But they have the opportunity not to do that. Maybe they never learned that. Maybe they didn't have the opportunity to learn that. Maybe they had bad parenting. Maybe they were raised in uh, an unhealthy way. That's unfortunate. That's what we should be focusing on. The opportunity to learn those things. The tools necessary to succeed in life. And there's a lot of them. There's hundreds, if not thousands, if not millions of tools that we all need. We have to have equal opportunity to those tools don't we? But when we look at outcomes, this is not a good way to measure equality, and it's not a good goal. I think I've said what I need to say here about equality. I want to emphasize again the book The Righteous Mind by Jonathan Haidt, NYU professor and psychologist who is nonpartisan, who came from the left during the Gore-Bush insane election of 2000 and came out of that thinking, I want to understand this world better. I want to understand moral reasoning from all sides. This is a life-changing book because it equips you, us, with the moral reasoning skills and the social skills to work with others.
and to appreciate where they're coming from, to appreciate their values. I know people that have a strong deference for authority and in grouping. Now that I know that those are their moral priorities, I know how to talk with them. I don't have those same moral priorities, but I know that they are moral principles and I can appreciate it to some level. There are authorities I respect, professors, experts, people that make good arguments. So of course I can understand the appeal of an authority. There are some purities I respect. No refined sugar. Drug testing kits. Whatever. And it's easier to talk with each other when we understand people's moral values. And it's okay to have different moral values. It's inevitable. So I, I recommend getting okay with it. And once we understand each other's moral principles and values, we can have political conversations that go beyond yelling at each other, calling each other names. It's important stuff. And when we care about equality, we have to define what kind of equality we're really talking about. And we have to specify how and why we care about it. If people are talking about unequal outcomes, maybe they're really talking about care. When they talk about an overrepresentation of black people in prison, maybe they care about those lives and they don't want them brutalized in a very vicious prison system. I can get behind that because it's very sad. <laughs> it's very, very sad what happens to prisoners. So I care about people and I want things to be fair. I hate cheating. But we have to really get down to it when we talk about this stuff, about what our goals are and how we get there. Because we can't get there through the, by any means necessary, through the exclusion of all other values. It's not fair. It's not fair to prioritize anti-racism above anti-sexism or anti-dogmatism or anti-gingerism, I don't know. You know, like there's, there's so many ways to measure the world that to prioritize one thing like that, you better have a good moral argument for doing so. And if it's that you care about life, that's great. But what about this life and that other life? And when you say, well, they've all, their, their ancestors have done enough. They don't need to live as well. I mean, you better convince me of that. That's a challenge. All right, I'm gonna leave it there as I approach another hour of thinking out loud. And a reminder that thinking is allowed. This is an important PSA because it's becoming more and more dangerous to think out loud. And I'm encouraged to continue doing so even though society is discouraging it. I would love your support. I'd love you to support me on Patreon, Keith Talfayan. You can go to my website, keithtelfayan.com, to find more information and my other podcasts. Um, it's a work in progress, always, trying to update my website, but I'm doing that. And <clears throat> I'm hoping to make more of these monologues and maybe dialogues in the future. So until the next one, guys. Ciao.